All right. Well, good evening. Good to see everyone. I, I have brought a little book tonight to uh, plug. Um, Arthur John bought this book, and then I, I took it from him so much he got mad, so I had to go buy my own. It's a copy of A Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life by Joel Beakey and Mark Jones. And I'll pass this around. It is a wonderful volume. I, I've checked it, checked it out on the Doctrine of the Trinity and on uh, Christology, the person of Christ, and it has passed the sniff test. So uh, we will put this, uh, put this right here, and y'all can read, look, take a look at it and, uh, and pass it around. Well, welcome to the School of Theology. We're on the Doctrine of the Trinity. This is the fourth uh, session together. Let's open up with prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray for your blessing tonight as we think your thoughts after you from your word. And as we trace the line of your church's understanding down through history of your triune nature, we pray, O Heavenly Father, uh, that you would guard us and protect us as we walk on holy ground. Uh, We have seen something of the deity of your Son and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We have seen how your word speaks of unity and plurality in the Godhead. And, O Heavenly Father, now we come and survey the wreckage of false ideas that have fallen to one extreme or another. And we ask, O Lord, you would guard us and protect us and that you might keep us fervent to follow your word and to have fellowship with you, the triune God. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome. Come on in. Well, we're looking together at the Trinity, and tonight we make the transition to the understanding of the Trinity uh, through the life of the church. Now, this is not to move away from the Bible uh, towards tradition. This is to move from biblical themes and ideas on narrow topics to a larger synthesis, always going back to Scripture to weigh the church's understanding uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity at various stages. So um, we're going to be studying the equivalent. This were medical school. We're, we would be studying various diseases tonight of one sort and another. And then, Lord willing, next week we will uh, culminate uh, by uh, uh, continuing that study and then ending with the modern period. Uh, we're going to look together at Unitarianism uh, in its second century forms of Docetism and Ebionism, and then at Monarchianism in its two uh, different uh, presentations, one of them dynamic monarchianism and the other modalistic monarchianism. And then finally, uh, at uh, polytheism in both Arianistic forms and then tritheistic forms uh, of that that heresy, set of heresies. So we begin with Unitarianism and particularly second century docetism. Now the term Docetism comes from the Greek word dokio, and it has uh, Neoplatonic and Gnostic roots. And we see a witness in the New Testament to this kind of thinking uh, given to us in 2 John uh, in verses 7 through 11. The little epistle of 2 John, verses 7 through 11. Can I ask somebody to help us by reading that tonight? 2 John, verses 7 to 11. There's only one chapter, so we don't even have to say 2 John 1. Just verses 7 to 11. Are many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. 
Watch yourselves that, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Or whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, as we do this survey, there are two basic doctrines we have to keep in mind. Obviously, it's the Trinity that we're studying. And so I can uh, draw the, the triangle diagram, uh, the three persons represented by the points of the triangle, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But yet there's uh, one divine essence that they all three share, uh, this one divine essence or nature of God possessed uh, by the three persons, each one of them. So um, we have a second doctrine, however, that we have to keep in mind, which is to say uh, that our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, uh, he is by nature divine, and he adds to himself a human body and a human soul in the incarnation. And if, uh, if I can graph this for you in a way that will be memorable, let's see here. If I put a little one here, and I put a little one here, and I put a little two here, and a little two here, then you know how the two uh, diagrams go together. Uh, there is one divine essence here that the three persons share, and there is the divine nature that the Son possesses. So this axis or this relationship is the same as this one. The Son adds to himself a human body and a human soul, and so he possesses all the attributes of deity and also the attributes that are essential to humanity. So he has a human body. He has a human soul, and that means uh, he has uh, the categories of mind and will. That is a human mind and a human will. Um, divine nature doesn't have a body. It is spirit with a small c. Um, divine spirit, that is without body parts or passions. And then there is to go with that or in that a divine mind and a divine will. And so... Uh, the Christian understanding of, uh, of person, this is where person is. This is where person is versus nature or essence is a little different than sometimes uh, uh, Americans uh, walk around with, with an idea of Cartesian thinking quietly, subtly in our background. At the end of the day, mind and will are seen to be the possession of nature, not narrowly a person as over against nature. And so the human mind and the human will of Christ are the reason why Jesus could say in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. It's his human mind, his human will, in voluntary submission to the uh, will and mind divine of his heavenly Father, which actually also happens to be his own divine mind and his own divine will, because they share the undivided uh, nature of deity, each one, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So these are the two maps, as it were, that we have to keep in mind. Now, as we, as we think about movements away from Trinitarianism, um, there are two major movements. One of them is, is that we can go from Trinitarianism towards Unitarianism. 
And that can happen in one of a couple of different ways. Either we can collapse the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can go from this, and we can collapse them all into one point together. So there's no distinction. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, these just end up being different hats or titles or badges that the one undifferentiated monad God uh, is. Uh, There's another way, another move through which you can get Unitarianism, uh, which is that uh, you just kind of let the Holy Spirit fade from the scene. Just think of him as a force rather than a person. And you let the Son of God incarnate sort of uh, be lowered on the scale of being. So so you end up with, uh, rather than a proper doctrine of the Trinity, you end up with the Father being God, and then you end up with uh, the Son uh, being a, a prophet, a nice fellow. And then the Holy Spirit is just a force. And so that's a second route that you can get to the same thing, which is the one undifferentiated monad God. Okay? And then there's a second major movement, which we're probably not going to get to tonight, where you move from Trinitarianism to polytheism. And that's where you take the three persons in their proper relationship and you just change it so that the three of them fly apart. And so you have three gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three gods, uh, usually with a little g, because that's easier to talk about than one with a big g. Okay? Yes. Your your, uh, instruction here has the divine nature having the spirit, the mind, and will. Yes. Is, under that construction, are you saying that the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son all have one will, which the Son is... Is uh, subjecting himself to? Yes. Or they each have a will? Is that what you're saying? All right. That, if, I put, if I put the question classically, the question would be, is there a numerical identity of essence that the three persons possess? That is, is it one nature or essence, and each one of the three of them possess that one nature or essence? Or are they the three amigos? Where you've got, and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to be humorous. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it just so happens they look alike. It just so happens they possess all the same qualities. Gee, isn't that nice? That means they're all three God. But yet there's not an, a numerical identity of essence. The Father has one divine essence. The Son has another divine essence. The Spirit has another one. They're all alike, but they're not the same exact numerically identical divine essence. That's the classic um, uh, way of putting that question. And uh, the, the, the church orthodox has always asserted numerical identity of essence because the three, the, the tri, there are two problems with this uh, threefold, uh, three amigos approach, which is one of, the, one of them is actually philosophical, which is how do you have an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable design, divine essence and it be anything more than one. There's a little philosophical problem there. But then there's another problem, which is, is that inevitably that degrades into, into polytheism. So you end up with the three persons struggling against one another without the unity and fellowship on the level of being required for a proper doctrine of the Trinity. 
because the, 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 I'm giving you a static snapshot, whereas in reality, this is a, a YouTube video with all sorts of dynamic, you, there's a dynamic unity going on between the three persons. If there's, if there's more than one essence, that essence itself has to be finite, or you cannot get two infinite beings into one universe. That's right. It's a mathematical. Yeah. Philosophically, that yeah. every engineer in the room goes, ooh, yeah, I like that. Now, it's, 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 a, it's a philosophical thing at the end of the day. But theologically, this is the big problem. Okay. So is you so get tritheism. That leads to my question. So we all yes. know one in essence, three in person. Right? Yes. Okay. That being the case, when we think of relationship, we always think of that as sort of my, my mind, my, the, the non-physical is having the relationship, right? In okay. Many ways, right? I think about it as a relationship between the two wills, the two spirits. Are you talking about two human beings? Two human beings. Okay. That's the way we think of it and see that. Uh-huh. We know that God is described as having a relationship with the Trinity, getting mm-hmm. the essence. How in the world can that possibly be? Ah, because of the creator-creature distinction. That, if you ask me for a third basic uh, 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 map or picture theologically, uh, that always is helpful to keep in mind, that it would be the creator-creature distinction. That God is the creator and that we are part of the creaturely realm. So human beings are down here. There we are, right there. And God is here. This is all God. Now, we are made in the image of God, imago Dei. And so that means that we are like him in ways that he has intended. It does not mean that we are him, and it does not mean that we're exactly like him, but it means that we are like him. And you have Trinity here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in, this, uh, uh, in the realm of the Creator, as it were. And among creatures, you have a likeness or an approximation of that. Human nature is not like this. And human nature is not even necessarily like this. Or um, the polygon has n sides, which equals the number of human beings. Okay? There have been theologians that have tried to work this out before, and what it leads to is a real spooky kind of Platonism. Our new Orthodox friends do this quite often, and you will hear this. You'll hear it in surprising circles. Um, uh, Some years ago, I was asked uh, to help... um, someone that was a theological expert advising a major American parachurch ministry. And uh, they said, we've got a problem. We've got theology coming in from overseas. It's tending toward Unitarian or towards universalism. Can you help me diagnose this and, and give us some pointers to, to counter? And, um, and I, I sat down with a guy, sent him a boatload of material. And, and basically he had fallen, his group had, had begun to fall into the hands of someone that took the, the Imago Dei too far. That is, they took it very woodenly. And so the triune relations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they claimed that we were Trinitarian or Infitarian, that as many human beings as they were, they all shared this numerical identity of essence of humanity. And so uh, the, the Godfather, theologically, of this movement would say this. He would walk up to someone on the street who was a Muslim, who had no belief in Christ, and he would say, he would say to them, you are human. 
Therefore, you are in Christ. And they would say, what? And they, he would say to them, in the incarnation, the eternal Son of God came and he added your human nature to himself. In adding your human nature to himself, he sanctified and healed it. And so, you are in him. When he was born at Bethlehem, you were born. When he was baptized in the River Jordan, you were baptized in the River Jordan. Uh, when he was crucified on the cross, you were cru crucified on the cross. When he was raised from the dead, you were raised in the dead. And right now, he is ascended and is at the right hand of the Father. And your humanity is there too. You are saved. Just don't make the mistake of rejecting the gift. And so the theological move was a very subtle one. Rather than there being an individuation of human nature... He changed it to what was functionally a platonic understanding, that Jesus had assumed the species humanity or that he had assumed the universal ideal of humanity. And, of course, this is an assumption that leads to universalism, except, oddly enough, the guy gave an opt-out clause. You were saved, but yet you could still stew in your own juices and insist on going to a personal hell. But yet, you, the whole time, you're still in Christ and you're still in heaven. Which leads to this, uh, as they call it, a, uh, a cat on a hot tin roof right at the peak. Fur and legs going every which way. Okay? So, yes, you're asking a very classic, or a, that's, a, that's a very astute theological question. The Imago Dei says that we're like God. It doesn't mean that we're exactly like God. We do not have infinite attributes as God has. We, for example, have the attribute of knowledge because we're made in the image of God. But we don't have knowledge just like God has it because that would mean we would have to be infinite in our knowledge and therefore be God. So our knowledge is finite. We have love, but our love is finite love. We have uh, uh, an understanding of righteousness. And in the garden before the fall, our first father had true righteousness, but not infinite divine righteousness. Uh, a human, creaturely, uh, not approximation of it, parallel to it. Yeah, excellent question. You guys are good. Yes? Uh, I've heard that T. Jakes has a oneness theology. Where would that, where would that fit in? <coughs> now, I am no expert on T. D. Jakes. My, my suspicion, see, it's not polytheistic. So it's, it's Unitarian rather than polytheistic. And um, usually it's of this first kind in the, in the schools that he travels in. What they do is they, in effect, say that there's one God and there are three periods. There's the Old Testament, which is the period of the Father. There's the New Testament, that's the period of the Son. And now we live in the age of the Spirit. And, and so it's just a little label or a hat. And the first hat God wears says Father. The second one says Son. The third one says Holy Spirit. And now that he's wearing the Holy Spirit hat, the Father and Son don't actually exist. They're just ideas. And um, I find that, when compared to reading my Bible, a very odd, unbiblical ideal. But historically and theologically, this is where it comes from. By collapsing the three persons down into the essence. There was, there was a conference that had Mark uh, Dever and Cody uh, Bacham, and they didn't want to go because the other 
pastors were actually bringing in T.D. Jakes and saying that he was a brother. Were, were they wrong in that sense, saying, I'm not going there, I'm not being a part of that, because they're calling him a brother and he's not? Yeah. There, there you're asking the question of, um, do I keep fellowship with someone that is making a fundamental mistake in judgment about the doctrine of the Trinity? And so I would, I would agree with Mark uh, Dever. And who else did you say? And Vody. I would agree with Mark and, and Vody at that point. Now, of course, the difficulty becomes somewhere the chain has to end. Because everybody knows somebody that's, that's not entirely straight. And they may not get their labels all proper. Okay? So, so I'll have fellowship with you, and I will strongly discourage you from trying to flirt with or have fellowship with somebody else that doesn't draw these lines in the proper place. But how wrong do they have to be before I break fellowship with you because your judgment is basically false? And if I'm going to do that to a second degree, what about a third or fourth or fifth degree? And at some point you have to throw your hands up and say, you know, it's a fallen world and we've got to learn to get along with certain people in spite of the fact that we may have disagreements with them on different things. Um, And in theology, one of the dirty little secrets you learn is that folks – Folks don't always know what they think, much less know what somebody else thinks, much less know what they think about what somebody else thinks that somebody else thinks. At some point, you get diminishing returns due to our finite knowledge to the point where, where it's not very helpful. But, but see, Mark, I'm sure, and, and, and Vaudi as well, I'm sure, would be, would be concerned that their presence at such a conference with that kind of posture would lead to a lot of confusion among the sheep. And they might mistake... Uh, something that's Unitarian for being Trinitarian. And that, they wouldn't want to lead people astray. Yeah. Do I, do I think that means you can't go to a professional conference? I could go to the American Academy of Religion, and you know what? When I do, I go there, and not only are there non-Trinitarians there, you know, there are non-Christians in every weird various cult sect or whatever. And I go to the Evangelical Theological Society meetings, and they're getting a little spooky sometimes too. Okay. So, so... You know, it's not that you can't go to meetings. It's not even that you can't speak at a professional society. But the problem comes when it's a conference or when it's in your own presbytery where you're vowing some kind of mutual submission. That's where you get a problem. Yeah. Good questions. Good questions. Yes. Vody Balcom. Yeah, he's a Reformed Baptist. Mm-hmm. And he's here. He's in Houston. Yeah. yeah he's he's up in Spring. Yeah. Spring. Yeah, I, I can't keep all of them. Yeah. And then Mark Dever is at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, and is a member of uh, uh, Together for the Go- um Yeah, Together for the Gospel. T4G. Um, Mark Dever. Uh, the best book Mark has ever written is. Uh, Nine marks of a healthy church. Had to remember how many there were. <laughs> if he made it Trinitarian, it was three marks of a healthy church. I could remember. The marks. The marks. Yeah, that would even be even, even better. Okay. So, with regard to this first form of Unitarianism, docetism, what you have is the idea that the Son of God is not a part of the Trinity because he, 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 he just looks human rather than truly being human. And that leaves into doubt whether he's a separate person from the Father. So it's, 
it's subtly some kind of collapse of the three persons by theological implication. And it has Neoplatonic and Gnostic roots. The idea that the way something appears might be different than the way it is in substance, the, the appearances or the, the substance versus the accidents of something. And so he just looked like he was human. He wasn't truly human. Um, my favorite illustration of this is uh, on Star, from Star Trek Voyager, The Doctor, um, who they, uh, they hit that button, you know, or call for him, and he appears, and he says, please state the nature of the medical emergency. And he's always ready to do whatever a doctor is needed to do. Well, he, he's a three-dimensional hologram. He, he has no body. Uh, he's just a program. And so uh, he appears to be human. He has arms and legs. He's a real actor. I should know the actor's name. That would make the illustration more dramatic. Um, and, uh, and uh, um, you know, he's a wonderful actor. But at the end of the day, he's playing someone who is not truly human. They just appear to be human. All right, the next, uh, uh, the next form of Unitarianism is uh, Ebionitism. And it's a Jewish sect uh, which... Uh, was classified as Christianity or, or evolved into Christian circles. And the emphasis there is upon the man, Jesus. That is, the emphasis is the opposite of docetism. Docetism put an emphasis upon the deity of the Son to the point where it called the, son of per, the personhood of the Son into question. This puts an emphasis on the humanity. Rather than denying the humanity, it's obsessed with the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is just a very good rabbi. He's a high, sophisticated, knowledgeable, quick, witty, charming, and good-looking fellow. Just the kind of guy we would like. But the only thing is, is he's not God. He's closer to God than we are. Who is his father? Well, his father is God. But his mother is Mary, yes. And, and uh, uh, it, it raises all sorts of questions about the incarnation. How did he get here? Probably he got here by Joseph. His father's probably really Joseph, but he calls God his heavenly father, and he, he can reveal God to us, and, and he helps us a lot. He's a very great prophet, for example. Um, and the book of Galatians is written to counter this kind of, an, of a misunderstanding, where Jesus is just a really good law, law keeper, just like you need to be to earn your salvation. And you have modern uh, manifestations of this second century heresy in great scholars like uh, the German 19th uh, uh, century uh, scholar Adolf von Harnack, uh, who was at the University of Berlin and turning out books and very busy telling us that uh, uh, Jesus was just a rabbi. And uh, most of what we know today is Christianity it came from, uh, uh, from the Apostle Paul and from these... Uh, Pagan Jewish or pagan Greek ideas uh, that were inflicted upon Christianity. Jesus never, never intended to be misunderstood as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's a bunch of Greek stuff. Uh, Greek philosophy run wild. He just really is, is committed uh, to being a good rabbi. And so should you and I be good too, good moral people. You know, upstanding Prussians. Yeah. They make... Make Thomas Jefferson look downright reserved with his uh, <laughs> pair of scissors by the time they're through. But uh, this second thing leads again to Unitarianism because the Son is no longer the Son of God. The Spirit becomes very amorphous in this system. And with uh, Adolf von Harnack and the entire theological movement he was in, 
The idea of Holy Spirit, not, not personal, depersonalized Holy Spirit, becomes identified eventually with uh, German uh, value and culture. And uh, in the best of circles, you see, uh, Jesus would be a good Nazi. I mean, he would know that we were right and that we're the superior race, etc. You see how theology can, go, can be taken and run off in a very strange and odd direction. And it, it leaves the Father there standing all alone, not in a communion and union of life and light and being with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. It leads him being pointed to by a very nice rabbi. And uh, it leaves him uh, influencing people with a force called the Spirit which is not pure uh, Trinitarianism. Let me jump forward with you to one more, which is uh, Monarchianism. Now, Monarchianism comes in two flavors. It's like vanilla and chocolate, two basic flavors, third century set of heresies. One is dynamic Monarchianism, and uh, it's also known as evolutionary Monarchianism. By that title, we know it's really bad. Um, and then uh, the more popular term by which it's known is adoptionism. Uh, you also uh, see that it's parallel to Ebionism in some ways uh, because Jesus is a very nice Jewish boy who becomes the Christ. And he becomes the Christ by uh, uh, coming under the influence of the dynamis of the dynamic, powerful, working Spirit of God. And this particularly happens, I mean, if you look back at all of Jesus' life, where would you think he comes under this powerful, dynamic influence of God? Well, certainly it is baptism. I mean, he couldn't have been doing anything really all that important before then, could he? Because the Gospels don't record it. I mean, other than that little thing in the temple, you know, where he's teaching the teachers... But the Gospels center upon or begin uh, with his uh, uh, baptism, and he's filled with the power of the Spirit. The dove comes down. The Father speaks at that point. Great miracle. And so that must be the point in which that nice Jewish boy who came from a mother and a father in the normal, usual way got adopted by God and considered to be his own son. Dynamic monarchianism. Where are the term monarchy, Well, at the end of the day, there's some sort of hierarchical thing going on here. Where the father is the one who is above okay. in authority and rank. Now, in this case, the son is pulled down so low, he's just a nice prophet. So you start with the Trinity and you grab the Son and pull him down and the Holy Spirit just ceases to be personal and is a vague force. And you pull him so far away from divinity, he's just uh, he's a human, but he's a human who becomes uh, um, caught up in this. You get, you get some interesting variations in forms. For example, the nature of the dynamis and the kind of impact that has on us can be formulated in different ways. Um, sometimes it's a... Um, it's an ideal way where the communion that that son, Jesus, who becomes the Christ, the 
fellowship that he has with his heavenly father, the relationship that he has with him becomes downright inspiring to us and teaches us and moves us to have our own such uh, dynamic and fellowship with God. And uh, boy, that sounds good. And as a matter of fact, you can craft sermons where you dodge major doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation and, and forensic justification and sin. And, and, it, and it just is so much fun to preach. As a matter of fact, Christmas sermons are just a boatload of fun in that system. And, and, and Easter, you know, it becomes less about the bodily resurrection of Christ and more about the resurrection of Jesus in your own heart. Uh, we have a lot of churches today. Really fine-looking churches, powerful churches, endowed churches that have uh, uh, this kind of theology. A lot of money. A lot of monarchy. <laughs> uh, but don't think that it's only happened in the 20th, 21st or 20th century or 19th century. Uh, Theodius of Byzantium in the 2nd century. Paul of Samosata, Bishop of Antioch in the 3rd century. Um, uh, they, uh, they all follow this sort of idea. And you have later figures during the Reformation, such as the Sicinians and then the outright Unitarians in this country. They put an emphasis upon Romans chapter 1 and verse 3. Romans 1 and verse 3. In the first half of that great chair text, Romans 1, 3 says, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And they would latch onto that verse and they would say, There, you see? He's a son born. He's a descendant of David. He's according to the flesh. And they would emphasize his human being, his human body, his human soul, his human nature, so that you would begin to see that he was a great prophet. And they would neglect, they would leave off reading the next verse, which makes reference to declare the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Divine titles being associated with Jesus, they just never got that far. They would stop at verse 3. And, and, you know, this is not surprising. I have a dear friend uh, from high school years and from college especially who um, lives in Greenville, South Carolina. She grew up in a, in, a, in a church there, a mainline church there. And she said, you know, bless their heart, she still lives in the same town. She's a Christian now, knows the Lord, loves him. And whenever that church, that downtown church is mentioned, she smiles and she shakes her head and she says, you know, bless their hearts at so-and-so church. She said, Jesus is still in the manger for them. He's just a little baby, meek and mild. They never have figured out he's the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. A lot of churches like that. A lot of Protestant churches like that. So, uh, let me... Um, you see if this is a good place to stop. This is an excellent place to stop. Because we need to pause and change gears. And uh, Bob Stacy is coming. We'll pick up here in two weeks. Oh, well, you've got to come back for the last session. This is dynamic monarchialism. And the next one is modalistic monarchianism. And let me just say, let me just say, this is just a little more philosophical but modalistic monarchianism, that will appeal to all the engineers. You'll like that. Now, this is like worshiping a lot of different gods. I mean, at what point are you not saved? Because you're not even worshiping God. Yeah. Well, again, you have, to, you have to remember, God is who he is. God is God, triune God. And then you have people's misconceptions.
<clears throat> how far down the misconception ladder can you go? For example, there, there's a uh, there's a pastor in a pulpit in Galveston, Texas, who gets up and uh, <coughs> preaches and prays to Sophia. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> bless, and as as my mother would say, bless her heart. You know, bless her heart. But you know, at what point? You know, and you, and you end up one person say, oh well. We're just worshiping the second person of the Trinity through the name Sophia. And then you have other people saying, I go to the church's, church with all the goddess worship. <laughs> and when you, when you decide that the Bible is inescapably a patriarchal, male-dominated religious book, and therefore for your religious ideas, themes, and theological patterns, you're not going to turn in that direction. Instead, you're going to turn into Canaanite fertility religions. <laughs> now... Now, where, you know, somewhere in there on that journey, you have just passed from one state to another. Okay? I think. Yeah. It's not Texas. And so, <laughs> yeah. Have I told you all the story? This is, a, this is a cute story. There's the story of uh, one of the great, great Southern Presbyterian theologians, John Lafayette Gerardo. He, he, um, he was the pastor of the largest Presbyterian Church in the country. It was in Charleston, South Carolina, Zion Presbyterian Church. Great revivals there. And uh, the unique thing about Zion, it was a church plant out of Second Presbyterian. And it was uh, when it was planted in the antebellum South, it was planted particularly for the slave population there. And um, they asked John to be his, John Jared to be, to be their pastor. Beloved relationship. Um, he went off to war as a chaplain and uh, stayed with his men when they were captured and taught seminary classes uh, while he was there uh, in prison. And then they were shipped home. He, uh, they were in a wagon. And the story goes they crossed from North Carolina to South Carolina. And when uh, someone said, we're now in South Carolina, um, it says that uh, Gerardo stood up and cried out, Stop! And he jumped out of the wagon and he lay his head upon the ground and he said, Oh, South Carolina, my mother... Thank God I can lay my head on your bosom once more. And his biographer says it was a strange scene, but it was characteristic of man. <laughs> so, you know, you cross from one realm to another, and it, you may not know exactly when it happens, but at some point things get a little dramatic and a little odd. Okay? Now, the good news about Jared, though, was he went back. His congregation took him back, and, uh, and he preached with uh, fire. He preached actually in Gullah. There, which was the coastal, he preached in Gullah, which was the coastal language of the African American population there, and had an influence that lasted several generations. A revival broke out, etc., and that worried the authorities, the occupying authorities, and they removed him forcibly from the pulpit. Uh, they would not allow, they would not allow a former Confederate clergyman even to have that much influence over. So much of the boating population. It's very interesting social dynamics at the time. John Gerardo. John Lafayette Gerardo. At his funeral, one of the ladies in the congregation sang and spoke, and um, uh, it was some variation of a poem she written on what, how come he's done gone and left us so. Because they, you know, they were just heartbroken. But uh, I remember touring there in, in the 1980s. And we managed to find someone whose grandmother had been in that congregation and had told her about the revivals. So it was pretty cool. Uh, the church is now a um, Holiday Inn, <laughs> which, which shows you the respect that our country has for the Holy Spirit at times. <laughs> they tore it now. But I have some old pictures. 
But anyway, thank you. We'll uh, y'all get some coffee and we'll change gears here. Well, it's good to be back with you all again this week. When we were together last, we were working on chapters three and four of The Shared Life by Donald McLeod. You recall, chapter three was explaining how the Trinity affects our relationship with God, and, and understanding the nature of the Trinity helps us, in a sense, understand Him, including understanding the mystery that is God. And I think we spent actually a good deal of time with that last time, uh, trying to sort of wrap our minds around or understand that we can't wrap our minds completely around uh, who our God is. Uh, but taking, I, 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 would, I would stress this, taking comfort in that, that is a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, we can learn a lot also. Uh, the, the fellowship of the Trinity uh, can, be, um, uh, can be inspiring to us. The, the independence, that is, God does not depend upon us. He is complete in himself. Uh, he doesn't require us, but, but nevertheless, um, he, he cares for us and created us in the first place. The, chapter 4, this is all just sort of setting the stage for tonight's work. Chapter 4 reflected on how an understanding of the Trinity can influence the way we regard one another. Okay, so the nature of God and the Trinity tells us how we relate to him, but it can also be instructive in how we relate to one another. And, uh, and McLeod simply points out that... Uh, you know, we are made in the image of that Trinitarian God. It's, and we often kind of, that, that, Dr. Rankin referred to it earlier, that imago dei, that, that, that notion that we are made in the image of God, we could do an entire term just on that and not even plumb the depths of, of the implications of what it means to be made in God's image. But we often boil it down to something more simple than it should be. So we often kind of, when we think about the image of God, we restrict it very narrowly sometimes. Uh, but... It's, it's a Trinitarian image. I, I don't, I'm not going to stand here and pretend to even uh, relate to you what that might all entail, but uh, that's at least McLeod points to that. There is a, there's a, both a complexity and a simplicity that comes with being made in God's image and how we then we, we look at one another, um, understanding that we are built, created for community, not unlike the Trinity itself, that there is diversity in us, that persons of the Trinity are different. We are different, but that's actually a good and positive thing. And that there is order and authority. There are relationships, right? The, the roles of the Trinity, the, the persons of the Trinity, are not exactly the same. They do, in a sense, different things. And that can be true for us as well. There are spheres of authority within our human experience, uh, just like there is in the, within the Trinity itself. So tonight we're going to look at chapters 5 and 6, with any luck. Uh, and McLeod sort of changes gears a little bit here in chapter 5. What does the Trinity have to say about our relationship within the church? Not just simply sort of human fellowship, but, but particularly the church itself and our life together as a church. And so we're going to start there. Let's, uh, if you would, turn with me to, um, to the book of John, the Gospel of John. And let's look at chapter 17, verse 21. John 17, 21. For context, I'm going to back up a little bit, so I'll start in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that 
that you have sent me. That, that's one sentence there. That's a very powerful sentence if you start to sort of really look at the pieces of it. Our, our, our theme here in this chapter, what does the Trinity mean for the church? And I think there's a lot to be sort of unpacked in this particular, um, in this particular verse and then even as we work through some others. In what sense... And actually, as a question, I'm, I'm, this is not a lecture. This is a question. I want you to answer. In what sense is the church to be united, or is it to be? Am I, am I asking too much when I say the church should be united? What, in what sense are we united? Uh, well, subjective to how you qualify the church. Yeah, yeah. But assuming, uh, I think we should be united in, in our simplest form in the belief that. You know, there is a God, the Word became flesh, died on the cross for our sins, we repent and confess, and, uh, and have hope in, in, in eternal life. Yeah, sure, yeah. And that threshold, I think, pretty much you should begin to see Yeah, exactly, yeah. And... So I guess maybe even in response to that, we, we worship together, right? There's a sort of there's a unity in our in the actions we take then in that sense. But 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 yes, exactly. Now notice here in, in this verse. Um, this is pretty powerful to be. You see, now you understand, you understand the context. Maybe I should have explained this. This is Christ praying, right? And really, he doesn't need to pray. He needs us to see him pray in a sense, right? That's, this, is, this is instructive to us. This is, a, this is a lesson that we can learn here. A whole lot that we won't even talk about tonight, in fact. But look how he approaches this. That they may know, that, that they may be one. Talking about us, the they, the they that he's referring to is us, the church, his people. That they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. Now think about that for a moment. The Father is in him, and I, he says, am in you. That's a form of unity that's pretty close. Just think of this in, I won't even attempt to touch the Greek, but think about this in English. If you have one object and it is in another object, can that first thing be in the other thing? It's, that doesn't even doesn't even make sense in a, it, to a certain degree to us, right? It's a, it seems like a paradox that's kind of a... Okay, let's try a Venn diagram. Here is, here is thing one. It's black. In thing one is... Apparently it's pink. Thing two. Okay, now I'm going to put thing one in thing two. I guess if they're exactly the same size, right? But, ah. Uh, but, but Jesus doesn't even blink at this. You can't just like, well, let me explain. Or, well, you know what I mean. Or, uh, no, it's they, that they should be, and notice what he's describing. Actually, I think maybe you put your finger right on it. He says that they should be one. They, we, should be united as one. Just as, he doesn't say as we're one, as I'm in you and you're in me. That, so there is a sense, there is a, an overlappingness. They, they go together. They are not separate. They are united in that sense. We should be united. Now, so again, points to the Trinity, right? How are they in one another? They are three, but they're still one. That's, again, not necessarily, I'm not enlightening you when I say that. I know this. We are not equal to one another. We are not the same as one another. But we are united together. The church is the body of Christ. Well, that's, 
Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm going to start to make a list here if I can and slide this table out of my way as, as I'm at it. McLeod, at least for his part, points to some ways in which the Trinity is united that can instruct us in how the church at least ought to be united. He starts off, he says, they are united in nature. Now, hopefully by now, at this stage, you have some sense what we mean when we say that the, the three pers persons of the Trinity share one nature. What nature do we share? If any, as Christians, do we share any kind of nature? With one another? Yeah. We're all okay, that's, that's a good start. But as yeah. Christians, we share the same belief system, the same We're all created in God's image. Yes. So far, so good. Well, all, <laughs> all the forgiven church, all the forgiven. Okay, right, right, God, yeah, yeah. Or the true church. Yeah. Whoever, wherever they may be. Yeah. We're all regenerate. Exactly. So that's, that's more in a sense than we're not merely human. We're saved humans, right? We're regenerated. That's, that seems like that would be important, right? Hannah, are we going to add something? Okay. Okay. All right. McLeod <laughs> makes um, some interesting observations. You turn to page um, uh, seventy-one with me, and he he this in scripture. I won't. We could do one of these things where I, I race you through like five texts and see who can turn to them first, but we won't do that. Um, but look. So we'll just look at the, at his page where he summarizes. Right. Look on page seventy-one. You see that in the middle of the page, united in nature. Uh, he says, uh, picking up just the second sentence, just as the persons of the Trinity are one in nature, so are Christians, he says. They are, again, the they is us. So think of yourself in this context. They are born again in the image of Christ, as we've said, and share the same primary instincts. Look at what he says. They are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They desire the nourishing milk of God's word. They crave the fellowship of God. Their hearts make music to the Lord. Now, I don't think that's supposed to be an exhaustive list. But I think all the way, this goes back, Jim, to originally your, your point, right? What do we share in common? We, we do desire to understand God through his word. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, I love that notion, the, the nourishing milk of God's word. I don't know how you feel about this. For myself, I know this is the case. There will be sometimes on Sunday mornings, particularly if it was preceded by a Saturday that included maybe a great deal of labor or a late night, and I'll hear my alarm on Sunday morning, and it's not the sound that I want to hear. I want to hear silence. I want to continue sleeping. And there's, I, I, I won't go into how often this happens, but sometimes a thought will come across my brain that says, ah, just go back to sleep. And that's a hard one to resist, because at that moment, I really, really want to be asleep. I'm confessing to you here. I love sleep. I know, I know, I know. See, the problem is, Sunday morning, when the alarm is going off, I don't remember that proverb. You're really a teenage girl. It could be. That could well be, right. So... Actually, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure that we need not split the difference there. <laughs> but, uh, 
It's the third heresy. It's, it's, it would be number three down there. But I'll tell you what. I have never, I've been a Christian since I was 23 years old. I have never regretted showing up at worship and being there and, and, and going through that with my brothers and sisters. No matter how bad, how much, however put out I feel when the alarm goes off, I won't say that I've always heeded the call, but, when I, but I've never gone through worship together in the Lord's house with the Lord's people and thought, no, oh, I just wasted my time. I should have stayed in bed. There is something nourishing in a very literal sense about the act of worship with God's people. And as, I think we say the same thing about other things. Uh, I never regret my prayer time. I never come out of that thinking, gosh, I could have just, wow, half an hour with the Lord. I should have done something else. I could have, I could have watched television. I, okay, that's a bad example. But. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's good. <laughs> just a possibility. Right? Yeah, yeah. In some fallen universe. This one, for example. <laughs> I think we're discovering new heresies as we go along. All I'm saying, I think, you, I think you're all with me here. All I'm saying is that what McLeod points to here is, as a kind of nature that we share, it is reflected in, in, in those acts of, of worship and devotion. They do reward us. They do feed us, even when we don't even necessarily desire it. It's sort of, whether we want it or not is beside the point. It still nourishes us. So there's, there's, uh, he's not... He's, he's on something, I think, very important when he points to a shared nature that Christians have. Because I can tell you, I, I, have, I have acquaintances who have no idea why I would get up early on a Sunday morning, drive across town, sing a bunch of songs that they've never heard on the radio ever, <laughs> pray to a God who they don't think exists. I'm wasting my time. Why would you do that? They don't, they don't share that with me. Not even a little bit. There's, there's a nourishment they don't get. And never will unless they can get right with God. So there's a, there's a nature that we share. We are united in a, in a nature. He also points, he says, we are united in love. He says something here. He points to something which, I've heard this before. He's not, and I understand, he's not exactly, this, this is not like the Puritan book that Dr. Rankin passed around. This is smaller. I don't know if you've noticed this. It's <laughs> lightweight and portable in comparison. But still filled with good things. And it's, it, Maybe the purposes are different. He's, he says something I've heard before, but the reminder is good, and, and it always kind of stings me a little bit because I know that I don't live up to it. He says, you know, you can't really love God without loving his church. And, and that's us. That's, I, can, I can put it more personally. I can't love God without loving you. If I don't love you, every one of you in this room, and the rest of God's church, I'm not really loving God the way I should. Going back to that notion, we, the church is the body of Christ. That's not a, those aren't just sort of pretty words. It's not even a metaphor. <laughs> There's a real truth to it. Maybe sometimes, again, these are mysteries maybe com hard to completely understand. But it's not, just, it's not even obligation. It's not like I'm under a command. Maybe I am, in fact. But that's not it. I have a relationship with you all that I would never have. A, a loving relationship with you that I would never have if it weren't for first Christ loving us. I, I can't explain this, but 
I pass, so I'm driving, on, I'm driving to work this morning. I'm on the West Park Tollway where there are, from what I could tell, about a million and a half people trying to get down that road. <laughs> there, to my exit. I don't know where they're all going. Yes, I'm to love my neighbor, but I didn't feel love for some of them at the moment. And I, I do. I am to love my neighbor, but, but there's a difference between how I regard those outside the church and those inside the church. We have a natural relationship, and not just a relationship. Love is the right word. We, I, I know it's uncomfortable. This is not how Americans like to talk, right? But, but we do have a... A, a relationship of love with one another that is premised upon Christ in our lives, each of us and all of us together. And that, um, I mentioned this kind of stinks because I know I don't live up to that. I mean, I know I don't always love my brothers and sisters the way I should. And then McLeod, he even takes me further. Actually, sometimes maybe I'd maybe not think about I don't, I don't think I do like this book. <laughs> <laughs> because he reminds me that even when, even when my brothers and sisters disappoint me, even when it doesn't seem like they love me, I'm not accusing anybody in this room, but you know, let's say, you know, outside this room maybe, every once in a while, I get a different kind of feeling from them. Still, I'm supposed to love them. You mean you love the people in the church until you meet them? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, you know, some... That's right. Some are more lovable than others. That is true. That is certainly true. Again, present company, you're all fine. It's, it's the others that I'm worried about. <laughs> That's right. Imagine if you weren't here. <laughs> you know how Cheryl can be. Being a Yankee, do I need to go out I know. There's clearly a dispensation for that. Yeah. As far as we know, there are no Christians who are Red Sox. <laughs> Everybody, do you read that chapter again tonight? <laughs> I didn't get the Red Sox games. I could attest to <laughs> We're going to move on before somebody gets hurt. He points to a unity in ministry. So we are united in nature. We are united in love. He says we are united in ministry. How do we unite in ministry? Well, on a basic level, we do stuff together. Maybe that sounds too simplistic. No, it's exactly right. We do things together. We do things for other people together even. For each other and for others outside of our body. We do this, right? And that can even... Yeah, go ahead. We also we serve the same person. We all serve the Lord. And we serve Him for the same reasons. Or at least, ideally, we're serving the Lord for the same reasons. And that's kind of how we can unite in ministry. That's exactly it. So, I just... Um, this uh, past weekend... My, uh, I, I teach a class at the university we call the Freshman Year Seminar. It's for every single incoming freshman has to take this class. Uh, and there are like 25 or 30 sections of this. So every freshman's so groups of about 20 or so. And I have a group of 20 young 
little students. They're freshmen. They're so cute. <laughs> well, that's a different issue, yes. We'll talk about that sometime when we're not here. But we have um, an annual, what we call the Campus Service Day at HBU. And all of the all of the freshman year seminars, all the FYS classes, we call them, all those classes go to different parts of Houston. Sometimes a couple will go together. Well, they go to different parts of Houston and, and perform some form of community service. You know, we spent, we spent about four hours from about 8 to about noon on Saturday morning. Uh, we went to uh, the Third Ward. There's a, uh, there's a ministry out there. Uh, it's a Christian ministry uh, that does great work in that community. We broke up into teams. My team went to a little shop that um, they call it a furniture exchange. You can sort of you can bring your old rowdy furniture that is maybe isn't serviceable. In exchange, you can get something that you might need for your home, especially if you you know not don't have the means necessarily to provide that for yourself. This is a it's a it's a good ministry and they do good work there. One of the things they do is recycle mattresses. I so I spent Saturday morning breaking up mattresses into its constituent pieces. There's a lot that goes into a mattress you might not know. Many of my students are believers. But let me tell you. There are a handful, about 25% of the university in general, I, don't, I couldn't tell you exactly how many in my class, but about that amount, who are not believers. They're, understand, everybody's there because they have to be. It's a requirement, right? You can't pass the class if you don't do the community service. It's not really volunteering in that sense. <laughs> but a, so we're engaged in a kind of ministry, but you can really tell for some people they are. It's, they aren't motivated. They don't. They don't love mankind because Christ is in their hearts. They're doing it because they kind of have to. They might even get something else out of it. They might, it makes me feel good to, you know, I condescend to help these neighbors down the road. It, but it's not a Christian love that's motivating them. So there is a sense in which, and it was very vivid on that, that Saturday morning, those who are united in ministry, really, who are there because they love God's creation and his people, and those who are there because for any other, a hundred or maybe a thousand other possible reasons, as simple as I have to, to get credit to maybe something more sophisticated as it makes me feel good, it's all about me and that's what counts, and any, everything in between. There's a sense in which we are united in ministry. Let's, um, he gives us a bunch of examples out of scripture here. Uh, look with one, look, look with me, starting on page 72 and over on the 73. Bottom page 72, he says, in Isaiah 42, for example, God announces, here is my servant whom I uphold. So he's t this is a reference, it's a sort of prophecy about Christ, right? So the father saying, I uphold the son. You see, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of ministry there. It's the father ministering to the son. That's the image, I think, that McLeod's trying to help us see there. So keep on going over to the next page. Uh, a few lines from the top. Uh, you are, from Mark uh, chapter 1. You know this. You've, seen, you've read this before. You are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Again, there's a kind of, there's a, there's kind of a ministry there of the father to the son. Uh, he points out after the temptation, God sent angels to, depending on your translation, might actually even say to minister to Christ when he was out in the wilderness. Again, there's a kind of, it's God reaching out, the God the father reaching out. Uh, he, just, he points out he does the same in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, depending on your translation, you might use that very same word that angels were sent to minister to him. And then he, he goes on. I'm just going down this page 73 here. Um, he picks up. I'm going to pick up halfway, halfway through the page. Throughout Jesus' ministry, God was accrediting him by means of miracles, wonders, and signs. 
The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was through the eternal spirit. That sounds like the Holy Spirit that Jesus offered himself to God. So there's this, this picture throughout Scripture of not just a relationship between the persons of the Trinity, but sort of a supportive ministry to one another. And that, I think, is where, is where McLeod is taking us, that, that that's in fact what we do with one another and then outside the church as well. There's a, there's a ministry aspect, aspect to what we do together. And then finally, he points to in this chapter, he points to uh, fellowship. Now, this is probably not a surprise. We've even talked about this before. But again, I, I don't want to belabor this point. This is kind of insulting to your intelligence if I go too far on this. <laughs> is there fellowship within the, the body of Christ? Is there fellowship in the church? Jim, I think was implied again in what you said earlier. If we don't have that, it's possible we're not the church. In fact, quite probable that we are not the church if there is actually no fellowship. And again, does the Trinity... Does it share fellowship? By the way, I'm glad our church is not called Trinity. That's, this this makes this conversation very awkward. Um, I, I, used to go to, I used to go to two churches called Trinity Presbyterian. So, you know, about half of them are. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a lot of covenants as well. There's, it's only about, really, there's only about ten names to choose from, it seems. <laughs> exactly. Which, yeah, where's the... <laughs> You know, if there isn't, I, I smell a church plant coming. That's a good one. That is a good one. So, again, just as the Trinity shares that fellowship with one another, the church being, again, his body, made in, we, made in his image, we also engage in that as well. So let's, um, let's take a, just a quick journey over to chapter 6 then. I'm changing the subject here in a certain sense. We're going from the church in a sense, McLeod drills down a little further. We're talking about the church as a collective, right? It's all of us. Um, he drills down a little further in chapter 6, the title being the Trinity and the Christian life. He's talking about how each of us live now. The, the, the life of the Christian is influenced and, and directed, in a sense, by our understanding of the Trinity. Here on page 81, so it picks up on page 81. Again, he takes us on a quick little tour of Scripture. This is worth just reviewing quickly with, with all of you here. About halfway down that first paragraph, he says... Um, he says, our bodies are temples of God, we're told in 1 Corinthians, right? The Lord refuses, uh, sorry, refers to this in John 14, 23, reminding us that not only himself, but also God the Father lives in us. And he even quotes it here. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's, 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 that's Jesus Speaking with the Father, speaking on his behalf as well, he will make, they will make their home with us. That's a pretty powerful statement there. I'm going to continue on in that same paragraph. John's first letter, he says, also teaches that God the Father lives within us. Uh, John, uh, 1 John 4, uh, 12 and 16, for example. If we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So you get this little, this little sense, this little picture of us participating in, to some degree in that interaction of the Trinity itself, right? The, the Trinity is interacting, and we are, as believers, we're drawn into that. We're interacting with it, and God is taking residence with us. That's, that's a remarkable, that's a mind-blowing insight when you begin to really ponder that and reflect on that. Flip over one more page. 
just one more of these. He, again, he has several. I, I, we don't need to. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and read the book to you. You can read. I'm sure you're on your own. But um, uh, he refers to Galatians chapter two, uh, verse twenty. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Again, this is sort of taking a piece of the Trinity in a sense, but also sort of binding us with it. So, this is sort of this is this is sort of um, this is McLeod's way. This is how he does things. And so, I was going to erase this, but I, apparently I can't. But look, I found a solution. He's going to give us some conclusions we can draw from this notion of, of our interaction with the Trinity, our, the, the life of the, of, the, of the individual Christian. And he points to several things. He says, we can take from this, we can conclude from this, that we live in security. Think of, think of some of the words and phrases we use, or the Bible uses, frankly, to describe who God is, especially who Jesus Christ is for us. Um, sometimes those 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 phrases and words have a very militaristic feel to them, right? Jesus is our shield. He is a mighty fortress. You get, you get the images there, right? What's happening? There's only when you are attacked do you need a shield. It doesn't serve you much use otherwise. You can't cook on it. You can't sleep on it as you could. A mighty fortress you could decorate for Christmas, but it's not the same thing. It's, it is there to resist things, right? So this, you get this sort of military picture. Um, Think of it, God is our hiding place, right? Again, it's, it implies that it's a rough world. It's a difficult place. There's a, there are threats around us, but, but God provides the protection, the security for us. The second one the cloud points to, he says that there is power in our relationship to the Trinity and the life of the Christian as a result of the Trinity. Turn with me. Let's look at this one together. Turn to page. No, turn to page. <laughs> turn to page. Whatever in your Bible. Turn to Isaiah, chapter forty. You tell me what page it's on. Five eighty-seven. Everybody, meet me on page five eighty-seven. Approximately. <laughs> yeah, middleish is good when it comes to Isaiah. Sure. Isaiah forty. Let's read. Um, but somebody mind? I, you, know, you guys get tired of listening to me talk, I'm sure. Because somebody read verses 29 to 31 for us. Okay. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. That's a. Uh, that's a passage you all know well, right? I mean, you've all heard that before. I'm not, this is that's, really that's, it's an encouragement, but but think of, of of the point there, right? That's and I love how the the verse 31 is the one we often quote and memorize, right? That's probably at some point in the Sunday school you had to remember that verse, but I love how 29 and 30 point and build up to it. Look, I don't care who you are; you can be in the best possible. Even the youth, even the young, are going to get weary. They're going to get worn out. I get worn out. That's not a surprise. But, but other people, even, even people in better shape than I am, will, they, their strength will fail and flag. But those who wait on the Lord have a source of strength, have a source of power, if you will, that is not dependent upon ourselves. It's not on, it doesn't matter how enduring I am. It doesn't matter what strength I bring to the table. Uh, God provides it. There's a... Um, and he points to other passages. We don't need to look at all of them. Um, but some more that you know. In Romans 8, what does it say? We are, 
We are more than conquerors. Again, that's a great phrase. Conqueror sounds pretty cool, first of all. I mean, that sounds all right. It's, I like that. But what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? There are many Roman emperors who would be jealous of such a thing, I'm sure. And, of course, Philippians uh, 4.13, again, another one of those verses you've probably committed to memory at some point, but I can do all things through him who gives me strength, Paul says. Turn with me over to page, this is actually page 84 in McLeod's book here. He tells a story that I just, every once in a while I'm reading through here and I think, wow, that's, that's worth remembering. So this, he tells just a little brief little anecdote here I thought we should probably look at together. Uh, so the middle of the page, page 84, in her famous interview with Michael Parkinson, Commissioner Catherine Bramwell Booth recounted how, as a young girl, she returned one day to her Salvation Army headquarters after sharing in a service. There before her was her grandfather, the formidable General Booth. How did you get on, Catherine? he asked intimidatingly. I did my best, Grandpa, she replied meekly. The General's response was devastating. Catherine, your best is not good enough. That would be devastating, wouldn't it? But he added, in Christ, we can do better than our best. That, that's a remarkable insight. And that's, I think that's, just, that's, that's worth just pondering for a few moments. There is a power there that is it's greater than any power you could ever have. It is better than your best. And actually, that doesn't really even begin to capture it. It's, it's, it's far better, in fact, than your best. And it's true, in a sense, your, your best, my best, our best is not good enough. It's not even that good, period, let alone good enough. Third, he points to the notion of adoption. The implications of the Trinity in the life of the Christian, he says, adoption. Not to, again, assault your intelligence, we become, through our faith, through Jesus Christ, we become sons and daughters of the living God. What's the Bible say? Co-heirs with Christ. Whatever that relationship is between the Father and the Son, and it's, it's, it's so richly described and developed in Scripture, they bring us alongside the Son of God and say, yes, you too. You share in this inheritance. Not because of anything great we did again. In fact, let me say to those of you who are younger than me, which is many of you, um, you don't earn an inheritance, right? You don't do anything to get that. You just, you just are. You have a relationship. You probably came from someone, and that person, look, I'm out of here. You can have my stuff. That's, you, didn't, you, didn't, you didn't do that. That's, so that inheritance that, we, that we, we are, we inherit, we are adopted into that relationship, God the Father, God the Son, and we become co-heirs with our you might say, our eldest brother, Jesus Christ, that's an amazing relationship to be in. Again, not through any act of our own. And it reflects that trinity again. Two more here. He points to also the concept of evangelism. Obviously an important part of the Christian life. But let me ask you, how was... This one was... When I first... Actually, I'm reading along here. I'm thinking, okay, you got me. You got me. That's good. That's good. But, oh, wait. Evangelism, what does that have to do with the trinity? She's at the bottom of the page. Why didn't you get to read ahead? What would evangelism have to do with the Trinity? Isn't that a strange thing? Well, just, just three persons uh, 
God had had to kind of work together for the plan of salvation to be carried out. You know, the Father sent the Son, the Son came, the Spirit rose into the dead again. Yes, yes, that's exactly way, it. You know, we can't go around saving other humans. Um, God works through us, and God often chooses to have us work together. That's, that's, that's exactly right. That's very well put. And I, I, I want you all to think about that just for a moment. That's how is it that the Trinity is reflected? First of all, salvation is only possible because of the entire Trinity. We often do kind of boil it down more than we should to just, okay, it's the work of Jesus Christ. Well, it's not just the work of Jesus Christ. It's not just the work of any one person of the Trinity. It's the complete work of the Trinity. And we don't save anybody. I, I work among Baptists. Some of you know what that means. <laughs> I, I, I love my, my brothers in the Baptist church, but boy, they, they labor awfully hard to achieve salvation for themselves and for others. And for others. That's... I, I remember walking into a church visit one time, and there was a going away from a pastor who, uh, I guess was a pastor that I baptized in the Baptist church. And this lady, I had no idea, but she knew I was, you know, she was going away. And I explained to her I'd gone here a long time ago. She said, oh, well, did, did Pastor and so-and-so save you? And I'm like, what? <laughs> um, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to... See, Hannah, Hannah put that so well. We are the vessels that God often uses to, to achieve the salvation of others. So I'm not saying that we're irrelevant, but we're not... We're by no means any kind of motive cause. We don't make this happen. And therefore, more determined effort won't make it happen more. But you understand, we do live in a culture where that really is, at least for some of our, our brothers and sisters out there, boy, if I just work a little bit more, press a little bit harder, there'll be more people in the kingdom. Obviously, it doesn't work that way at all. It doesn't work that way because it's God himself and the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, I didn't think of it like this, but he points to, of course, you know the verse in, in Matthew 28:19, Go out and make disciples, right, of the, of the nations. And what do we do? It's, exactly. It's like this little summary. By the way, don't forget, those disciples, they're disciples of all of God. They aren't disciples of one person of the Trinity. They are disciples of the entire Trinity, baptized in the name of all three persons. We're about out of time. I want to make sure we get this last piece in. He says, and we've already kind of hinted at this, I think, in our discussion of the last chapter. But our worship, but notice, he's not necessarily talking about simply corporate worship here. This is the life of the Christian. You, individually, me, individually. How, do we, how does the Trinity influence or teach us? McLeod simply says, our worship must be triune worship. We, we should not fall into, we've talked about this before, we should not fall into the trap of worshiping our sort of our favorite person of the Trinity, or the one we feel like we understand the best, or the one that we think gives us the most stuff back, or whatever, the one we're most comfortable with. This, there's a, I think, a, I, I don't know about you, I've seen this a lot in contemporary American Christianity. Different churches worship different parts of the Trinity. It's just, it's in the nature of it. That's not necessarily a horrible thing in that, you know, we often do neglect, but I'm glad somebody else, you know, picks up the pieces that I drop. That's, I guess that's all right, but... But our worship needs to be complete, and we need to worship the entire Godhead, uh, not just, again, not just the one we like. 
Um, he puts it like this. He says, uh, I can't draw, so I'm, I'm just going to make little squares here. He says, we often picture the Trinity as one big throne and two little thrones. So we've got God the Father. He's got the big chair. And then there's the Son and the Holy Spirit. Actually, sometimes he fades away. And <laughs> it's, it's not as though God the Father is like the big guy and the others are helping out. Right? We, I, Dr. Rankin has expressed that so much better that I won't even try any further. Um, but you understand the point that McLeod's getting at there. This, this is not, that's not the right image. These are three persons, one, one, one nature, three persons, and we need to worship the whole thing. It won't do to do less. We are actually about out of time, but I don't want to send you out of here if you have, like, if I've really irritated you or if I have caused some kind of crisis in your faith, please ask any questions you have. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a toll-free number. It's like the Obamacare website. I heard it here. Maybe, maybe Duncan said it last time or something, or maybe heard it in some other uh, class. But where it says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, isn't that basically Jesus? Um, that, that's the entry into, into the church universal. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. And so, in essence, he's saying that you just, once, once they confess Christ, you just don't walk and say, okay, have a good day. Yeah, exactly. Which, which you do see a lot sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, good luck with that. Which is, there's something, I think, since, at least since the Second Great Awakening, we've seen that model in the United States a lot. Like, I just, I gotta, I gotta check the box. I gotta, I gotta get you in. I gotta get you saved. And once that's done, I gotta go get the next guy saved. There's a guy on the radio. That, you know, yeah, that, sure. That, that uh, you know, he's really big on, on witnessing. But I mean, and he, he witnesses to people in in restaurants and and stop and goes and and, and which is a good thing, right? Yeah. Christ, yeah. And he's true. Yeah. 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 Exactly. You can't. It's it's the first step, right? Yeah. 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 I don't know if you guys heard what Hannah just said. You can't disciple someone who isn't first saved. But that's the point. What does the verse say? Make disciples. So you can't legitimately stop. Look, okay, you you, you said your sinner's prayer. Have a great life. I have to go on now. <laughs> Sorry, my, my order is wrong up. I must now leave the stop and go. <laughs> we are to make disciples. We can't simply stop at salvation, right? Once that person expresses belief, and that's a great thing, now we now the work really is getting started. The discipling, in one sense, is the hard part. That's an ongoing relationship we're going to have now. But we don't normal lay people have the authority to baptize. That's true. Not in that. Not in the literal sense, right? Right. Yeah. Hell, yeah, I know. It's, speaking of heresies, my goodness. Well, that's where being part of fellowship of a believer comes in, because you yeah. may not be able to disciple everyone you know that comes to Christ, just like you're not able to baptize well, anyone you know. That <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the charge he was giving to the. Well, it's just a collective, right? Yeah. The, the church has this responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not not Hannah personally, right? <laughs> You must make disciples of all of the nations. Exactly. It's in a certain sense, that's easier than it's ever been. <laughs> Think of how many people have been saved just as we, you know. Let's, um, we're out of time, so we should stop here. I want to make sure everybody can get out if they need to. But let's take a, take a moment to pray together before we head out. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that you are, you are the triune God who saves us, who loves us, who teaches us. Lord, we can, we can learn so much just from observing you and from reading your word and understanding you a little better and understanding how we might apply that in our lives. Lord, let us not walk away from here tonight uh, with maybe a, a happy feeling in our hearts, but leaving behind the teaching. Let's, let us, each of us, let us pass out of these doors remembering uh, what we've learned here tonight, and particularly, Lord, how we might serve you better in the days and months and years to come. Lord, each person here represents a part of the body of Christ. We are thankful for each and every one. And Lord, we'd ask that you would uh, use all of us uh, to be those vessels who would spread your word, who would make those disciples, who would uh, honor you with, with right worship. We pray, Lord, as we prepare to part company tonight, that you would bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>